This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. This week on The Extraordinary Story, it's man versus God as we look at sin. Jesus really, really hates sin, we discover. And we can be a little baffled by that. We'll talk about cutting off limbs. We'll talk about how many times to forgive. And we'll tell the parable of the unforgiving steward. And I'm going to do something a little bit different since there's a lot from the Gospels. I'll summarize everything we're going to read and then read the bits we talk about as we get to them. So we'll start in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, where John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw a man casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, He that is not against us is for us. Then comes a teaching on sin, when Jesus says, If our foot or hand causes us to sin, we have to cut it off, or there will be hell to pay. After that, we'll hop over to Matthew chapter 18 and learn that not only do we have to police our own sin, but we actually have to go out of our way to correct other people's sin. Then comes the famous exchange where Peter asks how many times he has to forgive his brother and generously suggests he would be willing to forgive him seven times. But Jesus says no, 77 times, seven times. And to illustrate what he means by that, He'll end with, and so will we, with the parable of the unforgiving steward. It's a puzzling series of readings. Jesus shows that he cares a lot about sin, but he also kind of implies that we shouldn't care a lot about sin. He will cut people off, and we should not, over sin. So what's the deal? What's wrong with sin? Why does Jesus make such a big deal out of it? Well, Since everything Jesus says is so rich, we can fruitfully make each statement in today's gospel a different spiritual lesson, treating what he says as a list of aphorisms instead of a continuous speech. But if you keep in mind the subject he starts out addressing, a deeper lesson emerges throughout all the readings. So he starts out by responding to the disciple John, who says he saw others driving out demons in his name and tried to stop them. So here's a quote from Mark 9. John said to him, Teacher, we saw a man casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ, will by no means lose his reward. End quote. So do not forbid him. Jesus' advice is to let him be God. Let the Holy Spirit take care of who he needs and what he needs in the church, and don't be a busybody interfering with others who are working hard on his behalf. But then if you apply that to the rest of the aphorisms and to the same audience, you get a, a deeper lesson. He's saying that the world is a place where Satan is wreaking havoc 
and any enemy of Satan is a friend of ours. How does Satan wreak havoc in the world? By sin. We talked about this last time, and let's review and maybe take a few steps forward. We start out in innocence. Well, in history, we started out in innocence as well. God created us to love and live with him in peace and harmony, and as soon as he announced that in heaven, that he would become one of us, his enemy leapt into action. Satan rebelled, taking angels with him, and took up shop here on earth where he is the sworn enemy of innocence. Remember, he doesn't hate you and me, exactly. Satan hates God. God is love, and so Satan hates love. He can't stand humility and innocence, the humility and innocence of the woman who's bringing Christ into the world, or our humility or innocence. So he sets out to destroy that woman and that child and to destroy us. That's all highly religious language, but there's a way to say the same thing in non-religious language. The latest science and neurology and psychology says that love is absolutely essential to a thriving life, starting in our families. Gabor Mate is an author and physician who has focused on addiction and trauma and has developed our understanding of how our physiology, psychology, and spirituality all work together. He's not a Christian, but Catholics will recognize much truth in what he says. He says, you can really say that love makes the world go round because love is the common word for attachment, connection. Gravity itself is an attachment force. Physical gravitation pulls two bodies together, literally. Love makes the world go round in the purest physical sense. But this is also true in the psychological realm. End quote. In other words, the love that makes God three in one is mirrored throughout the universe, but especially in humanity, made directly in the image and likeness of God. As Mente puts it, quote, the most important factor in the development of human beings is attachment, connection to another human being. As infants, we are utterly helpless, more helpless than any other creature, and stay that way longer than any other creature. Without that attachment relationship, we simply don't function. We can't live, end quote. So to thrive as human beings, we need love, real love, unconditional love. Instead, too often, that love is absent, weak, or we misunderstand it. From our first sin to our last confession, we see exactly what happens when love is thwarted. Matei describes how ruptures in our connections in early life lead to wounds that stay fresh for a lifetime. His personal story is a prime example. He was born into a Jewish family in Nazi-occupied Hungary in 1944. At the age of one, his mother handed him over to a stranger to save his life. When he reunited with his mother weeks later, he refused to even look at her for days. His mother had done what she did to save him, but in his pre-verbal unreasoning infant mind, he saw it as a betrayal. The abandonment, rage, and despair of that early experience affects him to this day, he says, and causes a fresh wound when he sees history repeating itself. Science is showing us again and again that these early childhood experiences, from infancy on, have a deep, lasting effect on us. This is when we are most connected to our mother, And the woman and the child is the big battleground in our early life, as well as it was in heaven. It's a place of comfort that can become a place of pain. 
Nazi occupation is an extreme example, but Matei shows that wounds of misunderstanding, inattention, and failed love manifest themselves in the mental, physical, and spiritual health of each of us in some way. It's not the character or severity of the trauma that counts. It's the way we receive it when we don't fully understand what's going on. Our early innocence was spoiled and thwarted by our own sin, our loved one's sins, or society's sin. Like Adam and Eve, God meant for each of us to be innocent, but sin started a new story in us, filled with hurt and anger and hopelessness. This false story tells us that we are unlovable, unfixable, unendurable. We turn to addictions to relieve the pain. We check out mentally from relationships and responsibilities, or we take our frustrations out on others. Sin is a force that severs connection, aggravates, and alienates, the opposite of love. But we all somehow remember who we were meant to be, and we all want to be innocent again. We long for it so much we can scarcely admit it because we consider it impossible. Father Isaac is a priest of the Community of the Lamb in Kansas City, Kansas, and he recently described on campus how this works in every life. All sin is a betrayal of love, he said, and the betrayal of love is a disaster. I think that in our soul there is a spiritual DNA, a memory of how God himself knows us, a nostalgia within us of how God knows us and how he knew us even before the foundation of the world. Father Isaac said. When we look into our past, we say, where is innocence? Where is this being intended by God, who is nothing else but innocence? End quote. Where is the real us, the innocent us, the one who reflects the love of God? Jesus Christ came to restore that innocence. Last week, he told us that we must be like a child again. This week, he starts explaining how we can get there. The apostles make the mistake of thinking that innocence is automatic, that it flows from being one of Jesus' special friends. When they see someone expelling Satan in his name, they object. But Jesus doesn't object. Whether it's Bishop Barron's religion or Gabor Matei's science, Jesus is in favor of whatever will heal the effects of sin from our lives. For Jesus, whoever is not against us is for us. For him, anyone who gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will surely not lose his reward. This puts a mirror up to us in his audience. Are we for or against him? Do we turn against Jesus in anything? Do we serve others in his name? Who? When? In the case of John stopping the expulsion of demons, the picture in the mirror looks dark. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were put around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So, when John defined an in-crowd of Christians and then policed others out of it, not only did he put himself against Jesus, he potentially caused someone to sin. John almost earned a millstone by objecting to other exorcists. Then he learned how generous God's favor actually is. Even those who offer water in his name please him. God reigns on the just and the unjust, as we heard earlier. If we give our water with his magnanimity, we are behaving like God. But then we immediately turn in the Gospel of Mark from Jesus' generous view of good deeds to his restrictive, harsh view of sin. 
as he says that it would be better for a hand to be cut off if it causes you to sin. I think both come from the same place, God's generosity and his harshness about sin comes from the same worldview, and that's the view of the world that realizes everything is God's, not ours. If the world is God's, not ours, then we have to let those who work on God's side do their work, and if the world is God's, not ours, then we have to use it rightly ourselves. And if the world is God's, not ours, then Gabor Mate is right, and our sin wreaks terrible havoc in the lives of those we are supposed to be connected with. Think of it from God's point of view, if the world is his. So imagine loaning your house to your best friend for the weekend. Imagine he rides a muddy bicycle inside the house, refuses to feed your pets, breaks your blender and your microwave through carelessness, and leaves the refrigerator wide open for everything to spoil. His claim on being your special friend would disappear as soon as he disrespected your home and those who you care for. Or imagine you're the friend and you're taking care of your friend's house and it has his image and likeness in it, pictures of his family and letters from his children. Now imagine you destroyed these purposely. How angry would your former friend be? Or a better analogy, imagine something even worse. Imagine his children were there and you deliberately taught them to join you in your destruction and turned them against your friend, made them reject his loving rules that he had for them. Well, that's what sin is. This is how we treat God when we sin. We do this literally when we neglect his children and all those around us, when we refuse to share what we have with them, when we insult them, when we write them off as not worthy of our time. And refusing to let someone intervene on your friend's behalf just because they don't know him is a non-starter. And that's why Jesus says we have to cut off anything in our life that causes us to sin. That's the next part of the gospel reading. And I started it already, but it goes like this. Temptations to sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, end quote. So we are going to talk about hell in a future episode, but it's worth noting that nobody talks about hell more than Jesus himself. What he's showing here is that the stakes as regards sin are sky high. By playing with sin, we are playing with doing lifelong damage to those we love, or worse, eternal damage. Often you hear people say, all of this is just hyperbole, all this talk of cutting off your hand or your foot or plucking out your eyes. But radio host Gus Lloyd argues that this is not hyperbole at all, and I think he's absolutely right. If your hand or foot or eye cause you to sin, you really should cut them off. But of course, your hand and your eye and your foot don't cause you to sin. You cause them to sin. In the same way, we need to cut off not our limbs, but anything in our lives that is a cause of sin, anything that causes us to sin mortally, whether it be a lifestyle or liquor or a laptop, whether it be a cable channel or a credit card or a click of friends. Doctors amputate a limb in order to save the body, 
We have to amputate sin in order to save our soul, but we often do the opposite. We amputate our soul to save our sin. We shrug off what God has entrusted us with and enthusiastically give it to Satan. But clearly, Jesus really, really hates it when we do this. He hates sin. But notice that most of his advice in the gospel isn't directed at those guilty of sin. It's directed at those who know those guilty of sin. Along with the advice about chopping off your hands, he gives the bit about whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Then he goes on to say, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others with you, so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as he would a Gentile or tax collector. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything for which to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So you're not just responsible for yourself. You're responsible for others. Where sin is involved, Jesus agrees with the old adage, silence is consent. So did the prophet Ezekiel when he said, quote, You, son of man, I have appointed you as a sentinel for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you must warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked, you must die, and you do not speak up to warn the wicked about their ways, they shall die in their sins, but I will hold you responsible for their blood. If, however, you warn the wicked to turn away from their ways, but they do not, then they shall die in their sins, but you shall save your life. Quote. Think of what would happen in the world if we all followed this advice. What would happen if more friends and family had lovingly counseled against divorce, told them this is never going to work, if you stick it out, things will get better? Or imagine if abortion was greeted with truth and love instead of, on the one hand, comforting lies, or on the other, anger and condemnation. Or imagine if conspicuous consumption was challenged, or if people's pornography habits were rebuked instead of encouraged by their friends. We did this with cigarettes, encouraging others not to smoke, with drunk driving. We did this with recycling, giving people positive peer pressure. If sins were physically poisonous, it would be obvious what we were doing when we refused to tell people that sins are poisonous. But sins are spiritually poisonous, which means the poison can last for eternity. Mother Teresa said, quote, If we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. End quote. As Gabor Mate pointed out, we have broken the connections to each other we need to live, all for the sake of saving face, all for the sake of convenience, all for the sake of ignoring or dodging our responsibilities. This is why the seven spiritual works of mercy are as important as the seven corporal works of mercy. The church gives us both these lists. In one, you need to give people food, housing, clothing. But the spiritual works of mercy are these. Counsel the doubtful, instruct the ignorant, admonish sinners, comfort the afflicted, 
forgive offenses, bear wrongs patiently, and pray for the living and the dead. Dorothy Day saw these as the daily stuff of a Christian life. She said, quote, Everything a baptized person does every day should be directly or indirectly related to the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. End quote. And that includes admonishing the sinner. The Baltimore Catechism gave great clarity on this important question. It asked, when are we bound to admonish the sinner? We are bound to admonish the sinner when the following conditions are fulfilled. One, when his fault is a mortal sin. Two, when we have authority or influence over him. And three, when there is reason to believe that our warning will not make him worse instead of better. End quote. That means we must admonish our children, we should admonish our friends, and we could admonish anyone who might respect our opinion. We have gone far, far from that, and now, as I've said before, and as the last several popes have stressed again and again, the greatest sin of our day is the loss of the sense of sin. We don't admonish our brothers because, frankly, we see nothing wrong with what they're doing, and they don't care if it's wrong anyway. It all starts with a personal encounter. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, Jesus says. We would rather do anything but that. We would rather signal our disapproval passive-aggressively. If we must confront the sinner, we'd prefer to do it by email. But generally, we would be willing to talk to any number of people about the sin we suffered, anybody except the sinner herself. But, If he listens to you, says Jesus, you have won over your brother. That is the goal, to gain a brother or sister, not to revenge a wrong, not to shame the sinner, not to right an injustice even. That is why it is done in private. The goal is to decrease sin's grip on the world and increase Christ's grip on the world by one soul at least. The goal is to gain an ally in protecting this world, our friend God's house that we are in charge of. Patrick Lencioni knows how hard it is to follow this advice. Lencioni is the million-selling author who specializes in business fables. His books tell fictional stories that deliver lessons about life, workplace life mostly, but also life in general. He's a good friend of Benedictine College, and he told a group of us, you have to correct people. You have to have the difficult conversation. And yet, people who would do almost anything for their business will refuse to correct others. I remember one client who flat out refused to correct a colleague. His team said, come on, you're willing to go to Japan for a meeting, but you won't talk to the guy down the hall? That's because going to a meeting in Japan doesn't make you uncomfortable. Why is it so hard? Because we don't love people enough. When someone has wronged us, we imagine the worst about them. They didn't just misstep. They are bad through and through. At work, we CC the boss when we complain. Then we share our own dismissive judgment about them with our friends. Only as a last resort, and perhaps only when the subject of our wrath tracks us down, do we actually speak with them one-on-one about our concerns. That's bad workplace practice. But in the family, it's even worse. Lencioni shared a story about two couples who were close to each other early in their marriage. One couple never argued, and the other sometimes argued vigorously, but always made up. The quiet couple thought they were better off, but they ended in divorce. The couple who aired their grievances had a long and fruitful marriage. He said, 
Being willing to lovingly disagree is a sign of health. The false peace of a couple that won't argue is actually a warning sign. So is the false peace we allow when those close to us are headed toward ruin and we say nothing. But Jesus has a safeguard for both the admonisher and the sinner. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses, says Jesus. And he's using here the standard that the Mosaic law had stated. This is necessary in the case of a sinner who's obstinate and won't acknowledge his sin. Or in the case of the admonisher who is obstinately seeking a sin where there is none. For me, doing this has actually prevented conflict as often as it has increased it. Often what can happen here is when we talk to a potential witness, we hear the advice, don't you think you're blowing this out of proportion? But if there is a sin involved, and it's bad enough that it deserves a rescue mission, even one as awkward as involving other witnesses is worth it. Sin is that bad. Its consequences are that destructive. But also, notice how much with these three rules, Jesus gives enormous authority to the church. If the sinner refuses to listen to your witnesses, says Jesus, tell the church. What does that mean practically? It means that the church has a duty to be aware of and act against sin in a community. In fact, for the church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That means the church has the power to loose people who are bound to sin. When the church neglects this duty, it's a serious breach of trust. They do it when parishes or dioceses cater to those who need their services least but can pay the most. They do it when their policies in practice ostracize or financially penalize large families who follow church teaching on contraception. They do it when Catholic organizations through false charity present poor witnesses of life to impressionable children, or when church officials ostracize those whose opinions are morally right but politically incorrect. We are shocked that churches in the past were often on the side of racism, but we shouldn't be. Some churches in our time are on the wrong side of huge issues. When churches do the right thing, as we'll see, their influence for good is enormous. Once again, remember the context here. Jesus is expounding on why the apostles should be on the side of anyone who casts out demons, because keeping people out of darkness and leading them to the light is what it is all about in the end. Defending souls is what's most important. That clarifies a lot about what Jesus has said in the extraordinary story. When Jesus said, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, he didn't mean, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. He meant to do it better. When Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged, he meant that instead of judging sinners, we should rehabilitate them. And when he says about unrepentant sinners, treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile, he doesn't mean to shun them, he means to treat them as those who need to be won over. He doesn't mean never again speak to those who have offended you. In order to show us that this is what he means, he continues by telling Peter how often he should forgive. That brings us to one last gospel reading, Peter's words followed by a parable, a great way to end this episode. Then Peter, approaching, asked him, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus answered, 
I say to you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. That is why the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the accounting, a debtor was brought before him who owed him a huge amount. Since he had no way of paying it back, his master ordered him to be sold, along with his wife, his children, and all his property, in payment of the debt. At that, the servant fell down, did him homage, and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back in full. Moved with compassion, the master of that servant let him go and forgave him the loan. When that servant had left, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a much smaller amount. He seized him and started to choke him, demanding, Pay back what you owe. Falling to his knees, his fellow servant begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had him put in prison until he paid back the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deeply disturbed and went to the master and reported the whole affair. His master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you your entire debt because you begged me to. Should you not have had pity on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? Then in anger, his master handed him over to the torturers until he should pay back the whole debt. So will my heavenly Father do to you, unless each of you forgives his brother from his heart. First of all, when Peter offers that he might be willing to forgive someone seven times, he thinks he's being generous. He doubles the three strikes you're out rule that prevails in some accounts of the mercy and the law, and he does it by being super abundantly generous, offering to forgive not just three times, but seven times, naming the number of completeness, seven. But Jesus surprises him with his answer. I say to you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. So to illustrate the point, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant who owes a huge amount. According to other accounts, the amount he owes is 10,000 talents, which is billions, since a single talent is 20 years' wages. Once he's forgiven, he meets another servant who owes about 100 denarii, a single day's wages for a laborer, maybe $128 today. When he won't forgive the smaller debt, his master reinstates the server's original debt. Now he owes everything again, and it is unpayable. The difference between the amount the servant owes and is owed in the parable is extreme, because the difference is extreme in our lives. Remember, everything on earth is God's, and we get practically unlimited use of all of it. We each owe God far more than these billions, because that much money couldn't buy all he has given us. Our free will, our intellect, our ability to choose and know and remember, plus every good thing we have ever had or ever will have, plus every loved one, every kindness, plus every color in our garden, every song, every poem, every good, true, or beautiful thing we've ever had or will ever marvel at, every joy, every accomplishment, every comfort. And not just that, we owe him even more. Because with every sin, we took what God gave us and handed it to his enemy. We took the gift of free will and enslaved it to sin. We took the gift of our intellect and used it to plot against God. We filled our memory with sinful pleasures so that we could return to them again and again. We repaid good with evil, kindness with selfishness. We chose the false beauty of sin over the true beauty of God's will. We wrecked the house of our friend God. And not just that, 
God not only forgave our debt, he handed himself over to the jailers and torturers in our place to pay our debt for us, dying and rising to place us on the shore of an ocean of mercy. If we repent like the servant in the story, if we fall down, do him homage, and pray, be patient with me and I will pay you back in full, we will be forgiven. But the next part of the story applies to us also. He sounds dastardly in the story, but we all do what the unforgiving servant does. He finds a neighbor who owes much less to us because their sin isn't against their creator and redeemer, but only against a mere human being. They have offended us by something they said or didn't say, or the way they said something. Maybe they caused us financial hardship. Maybe they offended us at home, or maybe they got crosswise with us at work too many times. Maybe we just don't like them, and we don't like the things they do, and we'd forgive it in anybody else but not them. At any rate, we're done with them. We don't forgive them. We don't speak with them if we don't have to. We can hardly even make ourselves pray for them. We say with our words or with our silence, you can never pay back what you owe. Like the servant in the parable, we put them in a prison, at least in our hearts, until they make up what they did, an impossible situation for both of us. It's an absurd way for us to behave because it not only denies who our neighbor is, it denies who God is. However, it's remarkable to see examples of people who do this right. The church is filled with these kinds of examples. But a priest friend shared on Facebook what an Iranian convert said in his RCIA class. The convert suddenly blurted out, I love Christianity. There is no revenge. It's true. Revenge is a demand of many cultures and a dark impulse of the human heart that feels impossible to resist. In the end, as hard as love and mercy are, they are a whole lot easier than trying to extract strict justice from every single person you have been harmed by. No longer will we take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but we will get mercy for mercy, love for love. This is the fifth petition of the Our Father. Forgive us as we forgive others. The Catechism says, quote, This petition is astonishing. According to the second phrase, our petition will not be heard unless we have first met a strict requirement. Our petition looks to the future, but our response must come first. For the two parts are joined by that single word, as, end quote. In other words, we will not be forgiven if we cannot forgive. Pope Francis recently did something huge when he directed that the Coptic martyrs of ISIS from 2015 in Libya should be included in the Roman martyrology, making them martyrs of the Catholic Church. There's a great application of all the lessons from today's Gospels here, because like the exorcist, who John tried to shut down, this is a case of who is not against us is for us. He's happy to include these Coptic martyrs who are not in communion with the Catholic Church in the Roman martyrology because they're included in Jesus Christ's family. But they're also perfect for today because they are such remarkable saints of forgiveness. So here's what happened. In 2015, Egyptian Coptic Christians who are working as migrant laborers in Libya were captured by ISIS and beheaded, and their killings were broadcast in a video shared around the world. When reporters interviewed their families, their answers were an extraordinary lesson in Christian forgiveness. One of their bishops, who is related to five murdered laborers, told a reporter, quote, Their leaving is painful, but we are not sad. 
We are proud of our martyrs. I congratulate ISIS. God is using them to bring martyrs to the world. Everything happens for a reason. I was very sad when I heard the news of the airstrikes led by the Egyptian military against ISIS. God asks us to love even our enemies. End quote. The mother of a 24-year-old murdered laborer said, quote, May God forgive ISIS for the pain and suffering we have been through. I gave the best gift to God, my son. End quote. The one I find most painful and most inspiring were the words of a child, a 10-year-old, I believe, who said, quote, My father died like a lion. He did not bow his head down. I am now from the city of the martyrs, the city of the brave lions. May God forgive the killers. We don't have hatred toward them. This is Christianity. God forgives the sinners. So shall we. End quote. When we meet Jesus Christ in the end, he will look at what we have done with what he gave to us. Then he will look at how we treated those who took valuable things away from us. Only those who answer like that laborer's daughter will be worthy of the even greater gifts he has in store. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.